0: Hey everyone, Trace here. Welcome back to Seeker+. Plus. Today we're going to break down the science of internet addiction, or as I like to call it, information obsession. Because we can't really diagnose it as an addiction, and it didn't really start with the internet. We're going to explore where this obsession came from, why it has such a grip on us, and how people use our phones to take advantage of our biology. And also, what we can do about it, where it's going in the future, the engineering and development that's involved, So much stuff. Over the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to delve deep into the history and engineering, biology, neurology, technology, and other ologies, all to feed our obsession with information. Don't think I don't see the irony of us talking about this topic. Anyway, let's kick into it. Before we start, you can find more episodes of Seeker Plus wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. Just look for Seeker. Think about being in an elevator, right? That awkwardness that you have? Maybe you started talking to them outside the elevator, now you're in the elevator, you don't want to talk to them anymore, so your hand starts creeping toward your pocket or your purse and you pull out your little phone device. Not for any reason, you just pull it out for something to stare at. Does that mean that you're addicted to your phone? Even if you recognize it and you don't have a reason for looking at it, when you check your notifications, when there aren't any, you know there aren't any, it's been five minutes, but you pull it out and look at it anyway? You ask yourself why? We can't really call it internet addiction. It's not actually diagnosable. But there are people that are starting to recognize this, as I'm going to call it, internet obsession. Today, designers hook you into their systems using psychology and behaviorism. They have no laws to stop them from doing this. And they design it this way on purpose, to keep you coming back again and again. They want you to want more and hopefully spend real money inside of their systems there's a guy who is a game economist and his name i cannot pronounce but it's raman shokrizade and he told NPR, as you play video games or surf websites they are tracking your clicks they are running tests they're analyzing the data right now wherever you are listening to this It's served up to you via a computer network. That computer is listening to you listen to this. It's figuring out how you're listening and how long, whether you listen at two times or regular times or even slower for some reason, whether you're listening in a car or walking around. It can learn so much about you. And they're pooling all that data with the billion other people who are using their services all the time. The YouTube algorithm wants you to spend time on their website. They look at everything you watch, how long, when you leave, what videos you like, things you comment on. They try to guess what else that you would like to keep you coming back to YouTube.com. Netflix does the same thing. Do you ever notice that your thumbnails are different on your Netflix than they are on your parents or on your partners? That is on purpose. The Netflix global manager of creative services said that quote artwork was not only the biggest influence to a member's decision to watch content, but it also constituted over 82% of their focus while they browsed Netflix. You spend an average of 1.8 seconds on each one of their key art, the little thumbnails of Stranger Things and whatever else. You spend 1.8 seconds on each one before you make a decision. They know that, and they're tracking it. Facebook knows how long that you stop on something to gaze at it, whether you like it, whether you click on it, whether you watch the video, whether you do anything. They know that you stopped scrolling to look at it. They know that. They do this And they learn about you so that they can make you spend more time on their websites, because that time is their business model. They do this with three big things, data, research, and behavior. I call these the three H's. They keep you coming back with the three H's. Happiness, habituation, and hella data. I had had to to get another H, Okay, I had to get another one. First, let's go with happiness. Every brain has a reward system. It comes built in. It's in our wetware. It helps you get out of bed in the morning, helps you get interested in social interaction, keeps you interested in things like food and sex. It also is associated with things like drugs. But laughing and friendly interactions and encouragement when you do things correctly, those all have to do with dopamine. It's a neurotransmitter, and it's part of the reward system. So just quick dopamine sidebar. I'm going to try and make this as quick as possible. So Science Media Literacy 101, when someone says that dopamine is addictive as cocaine or something like that that's a little disingenuous because dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin and all these other brain neurotransmitters, they're they're released from the brain's reward system. They're doing it all the time. And so when we say something is as addictive as cocaine, what we're really saying is the brain's only reward system is squirting out these hormones that make you feel a certain way. So when it comes to things like uh, your crush, you maybe made them laugh at your joke, that's going to release some dopamine from parts of your brain. When you ingest your favorite food, that's going to release dopamine from parts of your brain. When you make friends, that's going to release dopamine from parts of your brain. And when you do your drug of choice, that's going to release dopamine from parts of your brain, but a lot more of it. it is sort of like hacking your brain a little bit. So there are a lot of problems with saying that dopamine has to do with cocaine and other things. So just know that when you read it. That's end media sidebar there. So dopamine is very important when it comes to the brain's reward system. It's one of the more well-known neurotransmitters. So we're just going to use that as kind of a shorthand of saying your reward system squirts out chemicals like dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. And it's too complicated to just say that is happiness or that is addiction, but it plays a big part in it in your head. So a reward is a reward, whether it's a lot or a little. So the second H is habituation. And this has to do with psychology, specifically behavioral psychology. Psychology is the study of us and how we tick. And this is a pretty big deal. Dopamine makes you comfortable. It helps you anticipate things so that you can have that reward, and it gives you that certainty of happiness when you get it. In the 1930s, there was this guy, B.F. Skinner. And he invented this concept of behavioral psychology. He created something called operant conditioning. It's behavioral science. It's actually a psychology that is empirical. You can study it with conditions and have external and internal validity. Um, I, full disclosure, have an undergrad degree in this specific uh, type of science. And essentially, what happens is you give a hungry rat food when it presses a lever in a box, right? That rat has now learned to associate food with the lever press. It only works when the rat is specifically hungry, so what they usually do is they don't actually use food. Sometimes they'll use water or some other reward. But the point is that they can teach these animals how to do this and explore this science. So BF Skinner did this in what's called the Skinner box with pigeons. And you can use a time interval to study this interaction. So you get a pigeon to peck a specific spot, and then you give it some food. And it pecks it again, and it gets some food. And it pecks it again, and it gets some food. And then over time, you change what behavior you require to get the food. So say a time interval change. You can only get food once every 60 seconds. No matter how many times you peck that spot or hit a button or whatever, you don't get any food until it's been 60 seconds. The pigeon and the rat, they can figure that out. They can learn that, oh, there's no reason to waste my energy. I'm not going to get food for a while. So they wait they peck or push the lever or whatever, they get their food. However, there is another condition, and that's a variable time interval. So imagine instead of saying every 60 seconds the rat's going to get food, you add a variable. So you say between 30 and 200 seconds, somewhere in there, if you peck or push the lever, you get food. What happens here is the subject inside the Skinner box goes crazy. When Skinner did this with pigeons, one pecked 87,000 times in 14 hours because uncertainty is a nightmare when it comes to behaviorism. They weren't sure when they were going to get the food. It Was it 30 seconds? Was it 200 seconds? Now I have to peck constantly because I just don't know when the food is coming. How many likes are you going to get on your next Instagram post? You have no idea. So you better post one and then post one again and then post one again and then post one again. Because you want to make sure that you get more certainty, not more uncertainty. There was actually a study of this. Uh, 32 students at UCLA submitted photos to researchers. And the researchers put them into an fMRI and faked the number of likes those photos got. They said that the photos had more likes than they really did. And then they looked at their brains and where the blood was flowing. That's what an fMRI does. A functional magnetic resonance imager does is it maps the blood flow in your brain. They found that the fMRI lit up in the striatum, which is a little reward part of your brain, a little sassy bit. And they found that lots of likes equaled more likely to click on a picture. They also found more blood flow to the social and visual regions of the brain. Now, they're doing this to understand why we like Instagram so much. What does it do for us? And it triggers those little reward systems in our brain that make us want to do that thing and anticipate that reward, right? And it also ticks the boxes in social and visual inside of our brain as well, which we have evolved to like. We've been trained to respond to social interaction by dopamine, by a social interaction reward from that dopamine, and by each other. When we interact with each other out here in the real world, we get that same dopamine reaction. And the brain is too stupid to understand the difference when we see it online. So a marketing firm, Rhythm One, formerly called Radium One, uh, released a study that said, "Quote: every time we post, share, like, comment, or send an invitation online, we are creating an expectation. Emotion is a big driver, and dopamine helps drive that. Expectation of a new video release is exciting. When you know that your favorite YouTuber is about to release a video, that's great. When your favorite television show is about to come on, that's exciting too, but not as strong as things on the internet where they're designed to know that you're feeling that way as well. So now we get to the third H, hella data. So we had happiness, habituation, Devs or developers of apps and websites, they use the data of your dwell time, how long you're looking at a thing without actually interacting with it. Watch time, how long, say, you watch a video. Session time, which means as soon as you log on to Facebook servers and start looking at all their stuff, and then when you leave Facebook servers, they look at all of that. They look at your likes, your loves, whether you laughed at a thing, whether you you interacted with it in a different way, whether you commented, whether you scrolled by it, messages that you're sending, emails that you're sending, notification clicks. Your attention is worth a lot of money to them. So they take that data and they use it to try and get more of your attention. Plus, we know from earlier in this piece that brains get rewards from things. They also get rewards from social interactions, little puzzles, sexy things, anticipation, pleasing sounds, music, cute visuals like babies and friends, dogs and stuff like that, laughter and tears and all sorts of other social interactions. And knowing that, they can mine all of the data of the 3.2 billion people that are on the internet, and they find all sorts of correlations. We use the overlap of what we know that we like, of the dopamine in our brains being released in certain ways, and then they program things to fit it. Sounds a lot like games and social media, right? They don't always admit that they do this. And every time the different developers and programmers and groups update a game or they release a new thing, they're testing something. Whether that thing is a behavioral science or not depends on the website. You know, we can't say that every website does this all the time. But there are lots of websites, especially the ones that traffic in attention, that are using these techniques constantly. Actually, to be honest, Seeker does this. Facebook lets us A-B test different concepts. So we can release the same video onto Facebook with two different thumbnails or two different titles and see which one performs better. It's like a micro experiment that we can run on you guys. So to that end, let's kind of back up and go back to that awkward elevator interaction right? You didn't feel that vibrate of your phone, so you know you didn't get a notification, but you want to pull that phone out anyway, right? It's awkward in here. I got to pull my phone out. I'm in, I'm in a ride share with other people. I got to pull my phone out. I got to put my headphones in. I got to, I got to look at this thing. Maybe next time, just, just for fun, just for fun. Resist the feeling to pull it out. Resist the feeling to take your phone out of your pocket and look at it think about that feeling where did that feeling come from think about how it feels and then maybe think about how you've judged or discussed addiction in the past researchers have found that a lot of people who feel addicted to their phones and addicted to these games they have similar discussions as people who are addicted to gambling and gambling has been studied a lot when it comes to the brain so just think about gambling and how it relates to this for a second games like at casinos have little sound effects they have little graphical sparkles you progress through the games and and you slowly get rewards but slowly and managed does sound a lot like mobile gaming and you can actually fight this Facebook and snapchat and Instagram and all of these games and websites they make things that are time-based so that you return to them, like events and birthdays, coins and you know, build times where you have to wait 20 minutes and come back. You gotta wait for that new restaurant or whatever. You know, you gotta wait until your campsite's been updated and Animal Crossing. So the idea is they can get you to return and anticipate that reward. So, pro tip, if you wanna get over your internet obsession, turn all those notifications off. It's simple as that. Only open an app when you want to open it. And try and keep track of that. How often are you opening these apps? Maybe put some of the apps that you feel like you're addicted to on a different page of your phone or in a folder, or make it so you can't easily access them. So you have to actually make an effort. You notice when it's happening, it becomes less of a kind of muscle memory. Going cold turkey is not really great for any kind of obsession, but you can gradually decrease your time until you feel like it's a healthier amount. And eventually, maybe you'll be in the elevator and won't feel the pull of your pocket. I did a lot of this and it helped me a lot. If you have any questions or want other advice, feel free to tweet at me. At least if I'm going to be screen addicted, I kind of want to better myself. So I put learning and reading apps on my main page so that I read the news a lot more. Now I'm feeling like I'm a little news obsessed, but you know, It's a a constant journey. (laughs) As one of my favorite authors, Jack Vance, wrote in a piece called Inferio, quote, happiness is fugitive, dissatisfaction and boredom are real. Okay, so at the end of Act 1, we were talking about getting obsessed and how they get you obsessed, they with the quotes around it. But does that matter? What could it possibly do? And what could that do to us is an interesting question, right? But first we have to understand how many people are actually out there on the Internet. Internet usage has exploded. The International Telecommunications Union found in 2000 that there were 738 million people on the internet all over the world. That's not very many relative to the world population of 6 billion or more, right? That's it, just 738 million people. In 2015, it was 3.2 billion people. That's like half of every human that we know exists in the universe, and they're all on the internet. You know, maybe there are other humans somewhere else. We'll have to wait till Daniel figures out the Stargate to do that. But whatever. On average, Americans spend 10 hours a day staring at their screens. And that's at minimum. For me, it's a lot more because, you know, I'm staring at screens for you all. What we wanted to know is what all this screen time is doing out in the world. Is it really changing things, not just in the Estados Unidos, you know? We're changing the infrastructure of countries all over the planet in response to us being obsessed with sucking information out of the internet. Uh, But let's be clear. This is not the first time this has happened. So before we get to the actual infrastructure and the changes, let's address the history here. Because this is Secret Plus, and we love it when we get to do some history. In the 1700s, books finally became affordable for the average person. You could just go out and buy a book. And this changed the world. Now we had something called reading mania. People were really upset and scared because all these people, they weren't talking to each other. They weren't walking around the town square. I mean, I don't actually know that, maybe they were, but they were reading books. They had their heads down reading a book. Remember the opening lines of Beauty and the Beast? This was a real problem that people were worried about. It was derided and feared. By the 1880s, the New York Times wrote that novels were unwholesome. Books were unwholesome. They were unwanted by the media elite. They wrote the novel reader, quote, "...detests stories in which the interest is not exaggerated and pulled up ten times as high as the interests of ordinary life." They exaggerated normal life in these books, and ugh, who would want that? They called it unhealthy. They called reading spasmodic action of the imagination. It would affect our imagination hmm, that sounds so familiar, like perhaps our imaginations would be affected by the media around us and we would have shorter attention spans. This was in the 1880s. Today we have the Journal of Neuroscience which did an fMRI study where again they look at blood flow to different parts of the brain. They also added something to that to study what happens in our brains when we read. Eye tracking. So that way When they were looking at the fMRI, they knew exactly which word people were looking at while they were reading. They called this new system the fixation-related fMRI, or fire MRI, which just sounds awesome. Their hypothesis was that when you read, you're associating real actions in real life in your brain. That's represented in their research as well. The brain areas dealing with manipulation of objects and carrying out physical actions would light up when people would read words on a page. Words translate in our minds, in our imaginations, to real actions. So if you're reading a story about a wizard and you know, living in the UK or whatever, you're picturing those actual actions. When he grasps his wand, you're picturing him in your head grasping a wand. Another study done with 18th century literature specifically found executive function also lit up and our old friend the Pleasure Center. So, not unlike social media today, reading helps give us reward in our brains. We like reading things, we like social interaction, we like understanding, we like being entertained, and we wanted more of it, so you know what we did? We learned to print and write and create a whole supply chain to provide us with that entertainment. In this case, in the 1880s, it was with books. We changed the world around us to suit what we wanted. Eventually, we started creating other things to do that same thing. I'm going to fly through a few of them really quick just to give you the idea. I think you probably get it, but you know we're going to go Malcolm Gladwell, and I'm going to kick the dead horse on this. Telephones, think of all the pop culture there is around telephones, the sense of connection. There are not a lot of studies about this telephone addiction kind of idea, but I'm sure we all know of people obsessing over being connected, about feeling anxiety, about missing our calls, and we can feel that. And The New Scientist had an op-ed in 1986 where they had something that they dubbed the teleholic, which was a person who would use the telephone for long periods. They could have 8 to 10 people on a single call. That was especially common with teenagers. And they were dubbed antisocial and psychologically imbalanced. They were called sad, bad, mad, and shy. Sound familiar? Of course it does. You've probably heard that about your social media use. In the 1980s as well, New York Times writer Trish Hall wrote, the U.S. is becoming addicted to telephone chatter. Some people have as many as two telephones for a single person. Can you believe it? There were also fax machines. One guy was called out, which was a little mean, for faxing his girlfriend in Japan. What are we doing with ourselves, they were asking in the late 80s. Do young people have no inhibitions? Seriously. Seriously, they were asking that. People took this thing that they liked, and they started putting it around. Telephones were everywhere. We got them at home. We got them at work. We got them in airplanes in the 1980s. And the media kept commenting about how teleholics were the reason we were doing this. There is some science behind this. Uh, Science Reports has a study about social interaction and how it gives people meaning. And it lights up in the ventral striatum, which you probably already have guessed, is part of the reward system, our good old friend. What about television addiction? Of course, that exists as well. We've all heard and talked about that. In 2003, a Scientific American piece wrote about people who watch a lot of television potentially having some kind of substance dependence. It was very similar to drug use, is what they were trying to say. You could have repeated unsuccessful attempts to stop watching TV, and then you would get withdrawal from the entertainment that you would get while watching. The Journal of Behavior Addiction in 2013 did a literature review of all of the different studies around television addiction and found the first mention of it being back in 1954. Televisions then were much smaller, black and white. It was a very different time. And they found that it was addictions not unlike gambling and substance abuse that most mirrored television addiction. And there were behaviors that were involved as well. They called it food for the senses. And they said it was very shocking. Quote, TV addiction might be expected particularly among persons experiencing inadequate turnover of mesolimbic dopamine. That's right, the reward system, back again. Little dance break. So New York Times writer Roland Nethaway actually called television quote, an opiate for naive children. That was a headline. We began to change the infrastructure of the world for all of these different things. Books, telephones, we crossed cables from coast to coast, we built dishes, we launched satellites, we bounced the signals off those satellites, all to satisfy this craving for information, for connection, for social interaction, right? And yes, we haven't even gotten to the internet yet. This was all before that, dating back hundreds of years. What I'm trying to say by going through all of these different things is we build the infrastructure to serve what we want. The infrastructure doesn't just happen to us and then we react. The world adapts to us. We are not victims of our infrastructure. Books gave us unprecedented access to power. Newspapers gave us unprecedented access to power. Radio, television, cell phones. Do you remember the Crackberry, those of us who are a little older? yeah. The Crackberry was what they called the Blackberry because people were just on it all the time. And now there's the internet. We adapt the real world to wants over time. Nearly 90% of American teens report being active users on social media. The youth have continuously outpaced other age groups in adopting new media. That's according to Leonard in 2015. And the examples of how the infrastructure has changed outside of, you know, building cable lines and launching satellites to communicate better. And there are some examples of how we've changed infrastructure outside of launching satellites and building cable lines and such. We physically changed roads and sidewalks after the inventions of cell phones. For example, in 2014, China added a sidewalk lane in one of their cities. DC actually had one first here in the United States as a joke, uh, but it was copied around the world. Some people actually thought maybe this is a good idea to put people who are staring at their cell phones in a separate lane in the sidewalk as people who are you know, walking with purpose, if you will. <laughs> I couldn't actually find any follow-ups on the original flurry of articles about this in 2014. So if anybody knows if those sidewalk lanes are still there or if they're used, please tweet at us, at Seeker. There are people who are trying to fight this around the world to make sure that people aren't just looking at their phones and walking around with explicit infrastructure, like in Singapore, where they're putting traffic lights embedded in the sidewalk. So, you know, when you're looking down at your phone, you can see the the traffic light down there, and you know not to walk into into traffic and hurt yourself. Um, They literally have green and red signs embedded under the sidewalk. It's amazing. There are other places that do this as well. The Netherlands has crosswalks that are built to uh, keep you from using your phone. In Germany they have train stations that are designed to make sure that people using their phones don't get hurt. And in Thailand they also have mobile phone lanes where people can walk and use their phone at the same time. It's pretty amazing. The Ohio State University has a study where they talked about distracted walking and they found that 1500 pedestrians were injured in 2010 alone, and that has doubled since 2005. And it's not just silly academics talking about this. The National Safety Council that monitors all of this stuff found in 2017 there were 6,000 fatalities related to people being on their phone and not paying attention. In Honolulu, they're actually making it illegal to look at your phone while on a crosswalk. You could get a ticket for that, and it's an expensive one. In the developed world, we're not changing the infrastructure quite as much as in the developing world, mainly because we already have a lot of it built. But now that cell phones exist, the developing world is seeing a lot of infrastructure change, or maybe not change, that we would have had to do. Let me give you an example. We built telegraph lines, phone lines, cable lines, and cell phone towers that have cable and microwave connections to each other. In Nigeria, everyone had a cell phone, but they probably didn't build all of the infrastructure that we built to get there. They built mainly cell phone towers, right? They didn't necessarily need to build telephone and telegraph lines to get information to every single person's house everywhere in the country. The problem was they didn't have internet access to Nigeria. The big back channels that the internet uses, the big cables that are underneath the water that ship it across the world, those didn't connect to Nigeria. So Funke Opeke, I don't actually know if that's how to pronounce her name, but she is awesome. She started a company and got access to the internet in Nigeria through a backhaul service, and they got access to an undersea cable. And now people in Nigeria don't need cable modems. They can just use their cell phones and access the internet. Who needs wires, you know? There are also all these other plans to get internet to places without building all of this infrastructure. And you could argue that these plans are infrastructure in themselves. Uh, Balloons from Google, satellites from all sorts of different companies, drones from Facebook, and a whole bunch of other crazy ideas to try and deliver internet to people around the world, all in the feeding of this information obsession. Over time, we've slowly demanded this stuff from Ourselves, And there are people who are legitimately addicted to their devices, to television, to radio, to news. But there are also millions more who aren't addicted and are using these services. And with the Internet, just like with telephones and letters and newspapers, they're pretty ubiquitous. So the point of this whole exercise is to say a couple of things. One, information obsession is not an Internet thing. It's a human thing. We've always had Internet obsession. Let's go back to reading mania just for a second. One Quartz piece by Charles Chu found when he did the math that the amount of time we spend on social media is equivalent to reading about 200 books a year. We could read that in the same amount of time, which is pretty incredible. Um, But does that mean things are worse now? I mean, if you had reading mania, couldn't you just read 200 books a year, right? Maybe it's the same. Maybe they were reading 200 books a year, and that was freaking people out. In the same way that now we're reading our timelines all the time, and that's freaking people out. Maybe they're the same. I am not the person to ask if it is. You'd have to ask scientists and researchers. While researching this piece, uh, there was a really great piece on Timeline.com. It's uh, by Louis Anslow. You can check the link in the description. It's really, really cool. He did a lot of the research into newspapers and headlines. Uh, Claims have been made about addiction to various technologies that we didn't get into, including comic books, video games, uh, the Internet, of course, and virtual reality in a coming addictive way. So this is definitely a problem we're going to keep seeing. But we've got the internet now. It's, it's on 3.2 billion people's phones or computers, right? What happens when it gets to everyone? Should we change how we think about the internet and internet obsession and information obsession? Should we change that? Because in light of what we learned earlier with people taking advantage of our psychology and our reward systems, aren't we just giving another 3, 4 billion people up to this problem? Shouldn't we fix it? I don't know how to do that. Maybe you have ideas. You can tell us in the comments. Do you even think this is a problem? You can tell us that too. Maybe it's just something we haven't gotten used to yet. I don't think there are people out there saying, you read too many books, right? So maybe we just haven't gotten used to this one yet. So after learning about all of this stuff over the last two parts, you could probably be pretty confident that technology is reworking how our brains work. It's rewiring them, is what people tend to say. When we have cell phones and computers around, something called cognitive offloading comes into play. So let me give you an example. What is your childhood best friend's phone number? Mine was 555-9379. I know that's a fake phone number, but I'm not going to let you call Pat and Mike. Brian doesn't even live there anymore. I know so many phone numbers because I had to remember them. How many today do kids know? Do you know any phone numbers at all? That's cognitive offloading. How about emails of people that you've met in the last couple of years since you got a cell phone? You probably don't remember any of those. And that's because you keep them in your phone. You offloaded that information out of your brain into something else. There's a study in the journal Memory that looked at this a little more closely. They gave people trivia questions, and then they either allowed them to use Google or didn't to answer the trivia questions. Those who were allowed to use the search engine were reliant on it. They answered that question, and then they were more likely to answer subsequent questions, even if those questions were easier. However, if people didn't use the search engine at all, they were more likely to rely on their own memory at the first question, and also think about the second phase of questions before they would reach for their smartphone to try and answer it. Memory-reliant participants were also quicker at answering trivia questions overall, which means the internet doesn't actually make you faster. It's the other way around. There's a really good write-up on Big Think about this as well. This is changing how our brains interpret the world. For example, if you only lived in a bunker with a small population, you'd not really know what to do if you were dropped in Times Square. And this translates from the digital to the real world in interaction as well. Think about technology and how it's changed how we interact, right? We're connected, but we're not conversing. Some students don't even know how to have a conversation because they've never lived without a cell phone that they can text each other. We're together but apart is how it's often referred to. Sure, you're on Facebook and you're looking at baby pictures of your friend or your cousin or whatever. And now the baby isn't a baby anymore, it's a small child. And you're like, wow, I've watched it grow up. But have you ever talked to it? Have you ever talked with the person whose baby it is? Have you ever seen it in person? Would the baby know you if you met it? Sure, you know its life, you know its personality, but do you really know it? A conversation could change all of that, but we don't have a lot of conversations the way we used to. Plus, we could have a problem with empathy. Empathy is the ability to understand and share feelings of another. It's different from sympathy. Sympathy is more like pity and sorrow. Empathy is I'm in your shoes, right? Rianne Eisler at the Center for Partnership Studies said that we are restricting empathy only for those who are quote, like-minded, and that's new. We can train people to be empathetic, But we need to know to try and train them. We need to assume that the reality that we live in now is using phones and the internet all the time. It's the information obsession that we wanted and that we asked for, and now we have it. But it's changing fast, and there are no real answers. But if we pretend like someday we're going to go back to the past, we're never going to do this right. So with that in mind, I say let's choose to embrace it. And moving forward into the future, what can we use this for? We can use it for good. I studied behaviorism when I was in college. Uh, So call me a behaviorist if you want. But I think that hyperrealism might be a way to use our information obsession for good. Hyperreality is based on an augmented reality concept. Essentially, we harness the reward systems in our brains that we've been talking about, and also the technology and its ability to use behavioral psychology to make us do things. But we do it for good. So for example. Augmented reality, you've probably seen before. Yelp had this thing called the Monocle for a while. It was really crappy, but it existed. If you have a new iPhone, you can look for an AR app in the App Store. It overlays digital information through the camera. It uses tech inside of your phone to put a digital thing into 3D space. It's actually pretty amazing because right now, they come in every single iPhone. And mark my words, Apple did this on purpose. We're going to get a product from them at some point that moves the AR from your cell phone to your face. It's going to happen, but I digress. That's not really what this episode is about. So here's how our addiction to information could be used for good. We love rewards, right? And our love of reward could change the world. It's been a minute, so let me really quickly explain the reward system in the brain. It's what encourages us. We've got dopamine in there. It squirts out, and then we're like, oh, I want to do this some more. Behaviorism there are specific targeted behaviors, and we reinforce or punish the actions that mold that behavior. So whether that behavior is keeping you on Facebook or whatever, this is how that works. Behaviorists know this, and they've already used it in real life. For example, at school, if you get five points just for showing up to class— Those five points are based on a behavioral contingency, the idea being you would fear to lose those five points so you show up to the class, especially if five points is a lot of points in that class. I mean, you don't even know. Hyperreality might be able to take advantage of this as well by overlaying that information right in front of your face. This works for getting kids to go to class, but it can also work for getting people to raise money for a charity or register to vote, to learn a mathematical concept by giving points at each stage, to understand the lifestyle of a different culture. If maybe you read about it, you get some points. We just need the tech to catch up. And there are some more examples that are used out there in real life. You can get points for brushing your teeth. You can get points for listening to the news, a high score for how long you've held a conversation with a friend. You can unlock achievements for visiting new places, for challenging your worldview, or for trying new food. The options are really, really endless. You could even go the other way and say you have to pay points if you want to watch trash TV or skip a workout, or when you try and share fake news if it's actually fake news. Basically, we could use the behavioral psychology used by app developers. And we can use the reward system that we know we already have. And instead of applying it to come back to my website, watch my YouTubies, you could apply it to doing a good thing that benefits people in the real world, but of course there's still a problem here and that is addiction to the internet. What if back in the 1700s and 1800s they were right about books, that they were right about how we were exaggerating the world ten times more than reality, making the world seem somehow lesser? It's one thing if we do that on the page, it's another thing if we do it in front of our eyes all day every day. I guess I'll just have to go see Ready Player One, but whatever. What if the digital world becomes better than the not-digital world? What happens then? There's no real way to answer this. So if you have opinions and thoughts, you can tweet at us at Seeker. But in some ways, there are kind of glimpses into this. Reality is messy, and you can't just control everything. But since digital is somewhat better than real, that's why a lot of people prefer text message conversations, right? Right? If I can send you five words without worrying about micro-expressions or whether I'm sweating, and you know, accidental spits or stutters or bad hair days or whatever it is, I can just give you the information that I want to give you and I get no immediate rejection as well. I can just talk to you and I don't have to worry about all of this messy reality. Virtual reality could be that same thing. What if it just becomes reality? I mean, you could argue that reading is better than not reading. Having a radio is better than not having a radio. Having TV is, debatedly, better than not having TV. The internet is, debatedly, better than not having the internet. I mean, I wouldn't have a job without the internet and TV, but that's, you know, just me being full disclosure. Having virtual reality could arguably be better than having regular reality. The lovely thing about this is that there is no answer. We're experiencing this now. This is the life we live. This is where scientists are trying to find answers to these questions about technologies and our brains and all sorts of stuff. We just live here. Evolutionary neurobiologist Leah Krubitzer told New Scientist, quote, I can tell you for sure that technology is changing our brains. But so far, no one knows what those changes mean. What if this is just reading mania, but on a crazy advanced scale? Wouldn't that be awesome, but also terrifying? Of course it would be. But again, nobody knows the answer to these questions. Let me end on this. Jules Verne once wrote, quote, Science, my lad, is made up of mistakes. But they are mistakes which it is useful to make, because they may lead, little by little, to the truth. My hope is that we realize that by knowing we have internet obsession, and by knowing that we have this reward system in our brains, we have a power. And we can make rules so that we don't do harm, but we help. Our information obsession isn't going away. I have it. My family has it. My sister has it. That's a Star Wars thing. I don't actually have a sister. Anyway, it's everywhere. Information obsession is in everything. And what happens when it merges with our reality? Like, really, what happens? Nobody knows. But it could change the world. And it will. Again. Whoa. I feel like I learned a lot about how I consume information based on this episode. I don't know how you felt about it. Why don't you come tell us? You can find us on Twitter at Seeker. You can find me at Trace Dominguez. Thank you so much for hanging out with me here on Seeker Plus. Come back next week for another episode. This episode was written by Trace Dominguez. It was fact-checked by Megan Bates. And the associate producer was Victoria Barrios. It was edited by Alex Estevez and recorded by Spencer Snyder. The intern is Debbie Hanum. And I would just like to give a quick shout-out to Caroline Roth for trying to get us an interview, which fell through. But it only fell through this time, Caroline. We'll get it next time. Thanks again for listening to Seeker Plus. We're so glad you spent part of your day with us. Make sure that you give us a rating and share us with your friends. That's how we get the show out there. We're going to be releasing and rebroadcasting updated versions of some of our episodes on this channel every Thursday. So please subscribe and we'll see you around. Stay tuned for the upcoming series next week. I am Trace. Thanks again.